Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Chapter 1. Wayfair welcomes you to the neighborhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the neighborhood," she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Hey, Kevin. Who do we love, Rebecca? We got to do a little shout out. All right. Podcast shout out to Karen McClelland and Aaron Wolf, two of our Patreon supporters who supported us at a level sufficient for us to say, hey, guys, and thanks. Thanks so much. You are supporting Partners in Crime Media when you support us on Patreon and maybe helping us make some other podcasts in the future. Go to our Patreon page and check out all the levels of support there, plus all the stuff we will do for you. We'll come to your birthday party. I'm not going to anyone's birthday party. <laughs> Maybe by Skype. Yeah, we could do that. We could dress as a clown. What else is going on? Our live show is going to be at the Hatbox Theater in Concord, New Hampshire on Monday, September 12th. And we're going to be talking all about Wild Lake and doing all the other great things that we usually do on the podcast. To call it a show, I don't want to set expectations too high. It's a live podcast, David. Okay, you can sit in a chair and, <laughs> and, and watch us do our thing. Where can people get information to find out how to sign up for that? Just go to our website, crimewriterson.com. And what else can they do when they're there, Kevin? While they're there. There, they can also click on the link to go to Amazon and purchase the things that they would purchase anyway and help out the show. How about we listen to Toby read a list of some of the things that our listeners have purchased on Amazon, shall we? It's been a long time. Roll the tape, Rebecca. Obagi Elastoderm Eye Gel, 0.5 ounces. Not very many ounces. Eye gel? KT Mealworms and Oats Treat. Ooh. Oh. <laughs> what animal is that for? Aren't mealworms for fishing? I thought mealworms were for lizards. It's like one of those paleo <laughs> diets. <laughs> this is going to be almost impossible for me. Issy Mayaki Lo de Sea Pour Home Nuit Eau de Toilette Spray. Um... The Turbonetics 20142 Delta Gate Wastegate Gasket. Gets us automotive. <laughs> Garbanzo beans, a.k.a. chickpeas or CC beans. Non-GMO project verified, 100% non-irradiated, certified kosher parv, USA grown, field traced wheat. Somebody's really getting all the Google keywords into that one. Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, the legal system, and occasionally other podcasts. 
Today, we're going to break down some developments in the world of crime, both true and fictional. We're also going to delve into a crime of the week that's got me a little bit freaked out. A little bit of a spoiler alert there. Joining me to get started with all of that is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. But Mom, I don't want to go back to school. (laughs) And also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed private investigator, Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Hola. (laughs) Also with us... (laughs) I was taking Toby's line. And also with us is our favorite doubting Thomas, crime and noir fiction novelist, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Ciao, Rebecca. (laughs) (laughs) So guys, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been together. I'd love to hear what you've been up to. Laura, and I understand you also have a a mystery hovering outside of your home this evening? Oh, yes. We have a freight train that has been parked outside my house all day. I have no idea what's going on out there or why it's parked there. No people on it. It's just sitting out there running. So Ghost train. Yeah, if I get whacked tonight, you know where they came from. I do. Maybe it was a hobo. I also wanted you to tell our audience that so they, they, they hear some background noise on our mics tonight. We're pretty sure it's because of this running freight train in your yard mm-hmm. and the RF interference that it's throwing mm-hmm. off. Did you check to see if maybe it's like loaded up with iPhone 7s? <laughs> <laughs> it's nothing that exciting. Uh, it's like um, I went out. It's like a sawdust and wood pallets and stuff. Hmm. Very I interesting. I went to investigate earlier, yeah. How has the beginning of the school year gone for you? We know that you're a parent and you have a child who's been packed off to school for the year. It's been a little rough, let me just say. So we missed the bus Tuesday. That would be, yeah, that's yesterday. I don't even know what day it is. So we had to like drive up the street and chase the bus into the neighborhood that's like the next stop. It was a big drama. Wait, if you're already in the car, why don't you just go to school? <laughs> well, there's a <laughs> lot that goes on on the bus. That's what I said. I said, I'll just drive you to school. No, no, there's a lot of socializing. And then you know how that goes. So. Yeah, I, yeah. He's smoking weed. He's supposed to- <laughs> well, he might just be because seriously, this um, sweatshirt You know, this is the year he's in fourth grade that I guess clothing actually becomes cool to kids, to Mm -hmm. boys, and they actually have an interest in what they're wearing. Right. So he went on Amazon and picked out this sweatshirt with a cat with lightning bolts coming out of its hands. Nice. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. And he wears it every day. And I'm like, you're wearing that again? He goes, no, mom, I'm going to start something. That's right. Yeah. He's a stoner, Laura. I hate to break it to you. (laughs) I'd have a shirt like that. I'd wear it every day. (laughs) He's perfect. (laughs) Toby, how has the end of your summer vacation gone? Uh, It's been uh, pretty eventful. Really? What's been going on? Let's see. My daughter got a kitten. Oh. How are lightning coming out of its hands? (laughs) Well, it it may be. It's It's hard to get it to slow down enough to see. But yeah, he's awesome. Demands a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. Gets in between your face and your food when you're trying to eat, <laughs> stuff like that. So you're basically but, carrying on the ball family tradition of only adopting insane cats. Well, I think almost all, I mean, I think that's sort of a, like a given with kittens. Have yeah. you determined whether this kitten will be a killer like the other ones? Yeah, this, the signs point to yes at the moment. <laughs> it, it does a number on its toys. Is the name Hannibal? Its name is uh, Olaf. Like the snowman from Frozen? Uh, maybe. I was thinking, I was thinking, Google it, <laughs> I was thinking uh, Olaf Melberg for my British friends out in podcast land. Yeah, I um, don't think, I don't think your daughter named it after him. <laughs> probably not. Um, I'm going then, with the Disney film. And then my son transferred to University of New Hampshire and his dorm room is like literally like 200 feet from my office. Oh, <laughs> nice. So there's that. And then I went to a... Uh, party near New Paltz, New York, and had a really good time. I thought you were going to say at the dorm. 
Hey, it's only 200 feet that away. Comes, that comes later and it's not hey. talked about on the air. <laughs> Kevin, how's the end of your summer been since we've last all been together? Well, you know, Rebecca. <laughs> I don't really remember, though. <laughs> it's been good. I've been, I've been busy and you've been helping me to launch our new podcast, which is called these are their stories, the Law and Order podcast. Hey, we are new and notable on iTunes. We are week. new and notable iTunes. Really? Yeah. Yes, yes. And Congratulations. Yeah, and now we have an excuse to do what we were doing anyway, which is just sit on our asses and watch episodes of Law and Order. Yeah. We've been doing a lot of that, but taking notes. Right. So that first episode drops on Wednesday the 14th. After our next episode of Crime Writers on. Yeah. And oh. uh, my daughter's going to driving school. So, hey, watch oh, yeah. out, everybody. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to start the show by talking about something that we've been enjoying talking about the last couple of episodes, uh, a little something that uh, Kevin likes to call. Oh, what did I call it? Hold on, pass me the paper. Oh, yes, right. True Crime Update. Hey, Laura, do you want to try saying that so we can hear how your voice sounds with some echo on it? True Crime Update. Yeah, it's not bad. That's not bad. I think, I think she passed the audition. I think she did pass the audition. I think, I think we've pretty much determined anybody can talk about true crime updates and have echo added to their voice. Well, there is even more news in the ongoing Stephen Avery case for making a murderer. The three of you might remember last month that a federal magistrate vacated Brendan Dassey's conviction, ruling his dubious confession was involuntary. Oh, we remember. <laughs> and now Stephen Avery's new attorney, the very social media savvy Kathleen Zellner, has petitioned to allow him, at his own expense, conduct new testing on evidence in his case. They say this level of scientific analysis was not available during Stephen Avery's original trial and that any defendant willing to do this kind of testing, surely, surely they must be in innocent because it's a big risk to do this kind of testing. So here are the big takeaways from Zellner's filing. It's about 154 pages long. First, the defense wants new tests that can get DNA from unidentified fingerprints, hoping to prove that police manipulated Teresa Halbeck's car. Two, radiocarbon dating blood evidence to see whether it was a fresh wound or from samples taken years earlier. That's the blood evidence that was mm -hmm. found in Teresa Halbeck's car. The defense also says they have evidence that Deputies had Teresa Hallback's car in custody two days before it was discovered on Avery's property. And finally, implications that they will name new suspects in the case who killed Teresa Hallback and burned her body. Laura, I'm going to start with you. Reading this ruling, Kathleen Zellner and the defense team, they are doubling down on the theory that was floated during the documentary that a police conspiracy set Stephen Avery up for this murder. Do you think this is his best legal argument? Ooh, that's a tough one. I mean, I think, you know, you're going with what you have. I think it's going to be a hard sell. It's, it's definitely something that you have to be pretty... Uh, your mindset has to be really changed to, to get to the point that you believe that the police went to that length to arrange so much evidence to make it seem like it was Stephen Avery. It's something that I have a hard time even imagining could actually be the case. What about you, Toby? What do you think? I guess there's there's two things. One is, you know, I think the police conspiracy is, is always tough. I mean, it, it seems like what you would argue if you don't have anything else to argue. The second part is, you know, when you read a little bit more about who people think they're talking about as the other two suspects, one of them is that the boyfriend, Villegas or Villegas or however you pronounce it, and saying that he was on site and that he had taken off the uh, turn signal and then lied about it. And the other is a person who wasn't in the documentary who actually owns the quarry 
and some property, I think, abutting mm-hmm. the Averys is this guy Raydant, I think is how you pronounce his last name, and that he, you know, lied about seeing a fire that was supposedly burning the day that Teresa Hallback disappeared, and that he went on to the property after it had been sealed multiple times. So, you know, I like when you put all these things together, I'm not sure what kind of crazy plot you come up with. Cause as far as I know, like that Villagus guy and, and Raydant wouldn't have known each other. And then was the idea that Raydant killed her, but the cops decided to frame Avery instead of taking the guy who they knew had done it. I obviously there's a lot more stuff that's going to come out, but just with what little we have now, it, it seems more likely that they could find ways to maybe get Avery out of the picture rather than have some kind of coherent narrative about what actually did happen. One of the things that I think is going on here, and you know, it's interesting the way that this petition is written. The first couple of pages when Zellner lays out the case for the new testing and talks about the exhibits, is written as if these are evidence in fact. Like right, the, not, the factual not events. Not not theory, yeah. but but factual sort of events that the police had the car two days earlier. And then there's an exhibit that, that points to that, you know, the car was taken from the quarry to Avery's property. And then that points to an exhibit that actually indicates that a bloodhound can indicate that that track was used to move the car. But in the filing itself, it sort of states these things as fact. And I wonder if what they're trying to do here is just show that the police zeroed in on their suspect, as we hear it happens over and over again, to the detriment of looking at other people and then manufactured evidence that fit the suspect, I mean, they, you know, the, so the police may have actually believed Stephen Avery did it and they created the case against him in manipulating this evidence. Kevin, what do you think of this tactic? Well, I mean, your original question, like, is this the best defense yeah. that they should go with? And I think, it, you know, like you said, they are doubling down. Mm-hmm. This is I mean, this is the, uh, the the one that got him there. You mm-hmm. know, the horse that got him to the dance. And I'm mixing a bunch of metaphors here, but that's OK. Yeah, I think this is probably their best shot. It's certainly the thing that resonates with people mm-hmm. that it's a setup it's again it, it becomes so hard because uh you remember dean strang even saying in the documentary that, that as a lawyer you don't want to go in a court and your argument is that the police planted evidence right that is never like your strongest legal argument even if it's true but again it, it comes back down to the idea that there was a third party that killed Teresa, and that the police separate of that were opportunistic and set up Avery in such a way that there was no evidence of the actual killer and they planted evidence of him as the killer. And, you know, you could see why that was hard for the jury the first time. Well, I'm not sure that a lot of what is in this filing got in front of the jury the last time. You know, I mean, I think it's one thing to sort of speculate about how the car got there and, and playing that call, you know, that we heard running the plate and so forth. It's another thing to have Exhibit C, which is in this filing, which it appears to be a page from a report filed by a Detective Remaker from the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department. The summary section is dated... November 3rd, 2005. Above the summary section, there's a section that says evidence seized, which then says that uh, Teresa Halbeck's car was taken into evidence on the same day, November 3rd, two days before it was found at the Avery property during that search we saw at the documentary. Now, this is one of those pieces of paper that, out of context, is a 22-page report, only two pages of it. Are there, are right. Are there in the filing mm-hmm. and have Exhibit C. Right. So we don't know what the rest of the context is. We don't know what the rest of the context is. And it is. doesn't say, I don't mean to interrupt, but it doesn't say in that extrapolation there 
where the car was seized from. Right. It just says that the date is two days. Now, that could be an error. I mean, it could be that yeah. simple that he typed in the wrong date because he, that's the date that this detective began his involvement in the case. That's potentially true. I mean, what that do you is yeah. the easiest answer. Right. It, but it, it could be a typed error. But clearly the report was written after the car right. was somewhere. Right. But then again, you also have to believe that the police were smart enough to create this this whole conspiracy where they move the car and they plant the evidence and they make sure there's no physical evidence of the real killer. But they file a report, you know, that they don't yeah. think to do that. I think that one of the things that we're being asked to believe, though, also, because one of the things that she wants tested is that keychain. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Which is interesting. Laura, do you remember the keychain that the uh, police found behind the bookcase in Avery's room after they'd already searched the room? And then on tape, we hear in the documentary that the keychain was not there before and that it was and discovered. It was. Yeah. yeah. What do you think of all of this? The testing, this report with the car. I don't know if you had a chance to look at all these exhibits, yeah. but what do you think of the exhibits that are attached to this petition? Yeah. So, you know, with regard to the report, you know, I've read a lot of police reports and I also coming from a background of being a writer and an editor, I always proofread my reports, you know, when I was doing that kind of work, the police don't always do that. So to me, this seems like, you know what, this could be as easy as this guy was writing it out of timeline and he didn't proofread it and he was just sloppy. You know, there's been lots of cases where reports, you know, an interview's done and the report's not written for weeks or even months afterwards. So that one didn't strike me as, you know, that much of like the big smoking gun. The keychain, you know, I think the theory at the time was that it was there and it just got knocked out. And in that still could be believable. I think that the people that are really latched on to the conspiracy theory are going to see things exactly as they want to see them at this point. So you could see it both ways in terms of it being planted, but it's going to be interesting to see what this testing does with that. You know, it just struck me that this is going to be some of that like super fine-tuned DNA testing that we talked yeah. about several episodes ago, right? Yeah, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. So who knows what they're going to scoop up? Yeah, I mean, it, it seems it like if the idea is if you're looking for for Lank or uh, Colburn that you could very likely find it regardless of if they were involved, right? right? If they're around the car and the evidence and stuff, so. But they weren't supposed to be. See, this is where I get hung up. I mean, I am not a um, stalwart, the police definitely set up Avery person in terms of like mm -hmm. I'm, everything that I see fits that. I do, however, feel like those guys were not supposed to be doing that search of the house. They were not supposed to be there. They mm -hmm. were supposed to be recused from this whole thing. Mm -hmm. They were in the house. You know, the keychain was found. There's a lot of sort of threads of this investigation that do point to these guys. Was it Coburn who mm -hmm. called in the car on, or Lank, who called in the car on, on November 3rd, who called in the plate? And we saw that in the documentary. Right. There's just a lot kind of like piled on that points to something. I mean, it may not be the elaborate, incredibly twisted thing that could be that a lot of people believe it is. But I don't know, Kevin, am I nuts to think that, you know, yes. Oh no! Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, cops in history and in, in the history of mankind have been known to put evidence where it's supposed to be to make the case they want to make. Mm -hmm. Yes or no? Yeah, you know, okay, you know, place a gun or a knife, at, you know, when when uh, you know the person was unarmed, or it's not unheard of that a police officer would plant evidence 
at the scene to strengthen or to make a case. Mm -hmm. But again, you're talking about like so much stuff. I I think back to the People versus O.J. Simpson, Mm -hmm. not the documentary, but the the FX Mm -hmm. miniseries. And you remember that scene where Marsha and Chris Darden go up to that bar in Oakland uh, in Oakland and he hangs out with his friends. And that's the night that she wanted the D and. Or OJ would go free. I'm the, I'm the only one that still laughs at that. So um, <laughs> I, was, I, I was laughing on the inside. Not me. Not me. Well, Marsha's like talking with all of Darden's friends and like, you know, a lot of them are like, ah, you know, OJ didn't do it. And so she makes the case against the police conspiracy that she never gets to make in the courtroom. Right. Where she succinctly says, so in order to believe this, you have to believe that so-and-so went here and then found this glove and then without any other trace, when you say it like that with the Avery case, it starts to sound incredible that, again, that you would have these officers who would suddenly come across a missing person and also have the, the wherewithal to move the body and burn it and put it here and then to take the car and move it here and there'd be absolutely, you know, they'd have to be certain that there's no evidence incriminating anybody else in the car and that they go and they're able to get old blood from 1996 and plant it in, in strategic places in the car and then arrest it. It, it. it becomes exhausting. But then when you go and yeah. look at the blood vial and it looks like it could have been tampered with and mm-hmm. then when you look at the bones and there are bones ostensibly in this second location, not just on Avery's property. Right, but you don't know which was the location A and which was location B. And then you add on the searchers who in the acres and acres and acres of the field found the car in five minutes. Mm -hmm. It is easy to go the other way too. And I... I I, I don't blame people for, for, you know, for believing Avery's side of it. Yeah, no, no, I mean, that's fine. (laughs) Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? I'll tell you, I'll just throw it out there. I'll, I'll say what I believe. I don't know whether or not Stephen Avery committed the crime. I really don't. And I'm not just saying that to be, you know, neutral journalist person. Mm-hmm. I really don't know. I do believe there was something fishy with the evidence. And then, you know what? So does Dean Strang. Avery's attorney believes there was something fishy with the evidence. Oh, and that's a surprise. So, but so do a lot of people. Yeah. People that wouldn't necessarily go on record as having said so. I've been really interested in the radiocarbon dating tests that they want to talk about where they say, and I'm sure there's going to be a fry hearing on all of this stuff because it sounds like it's never been used in Wisconsin before, but if they can determine, you know, they say they'll be able to determine whether this blood was fresh in 2000, was it six, 2005, or whether it's from 1990, with the mid nineties, right, right. you know, when that vial was taken. I mean, if it's from 1996, I'm like, well, okay. I'm really convinced now that that blood was planted. Right. So in her filing, uh, Zellner says that asking for that kind of testing would be risking Avery's own guilt. Like he wouldn't ask for it if he was a guilty man. So does that play more for someone like you, Toby, the skeptic, or is it for the judge? Who is that statement for, you think? It's a ridiculous statement. What do you mean? (laughs) I mean, he's, you know, what has he got to lose? Mm -hmm. It's like he's. He's already been found guilty. You know, even if he was guilty, you just throw a Hail Mary and hope that the the evidence, the DNA evidence is like confusing enough or whatever that it makes you look better. So I don't this whole thing like, well, you know, why would a guilty guy do this if this is his first trial and he hadn't been already convicted? Then, yeah, I think that makes sense. But once you're in jail, I mean, seriously, what do you have to lose? You know, why not give it a shot? 
did he have all this money left over from the last trial? Did paying Strang and uh, what's his face not no. tap him out? I believe that this is probably this testing is probably being paid for by money that's been raised since the documentary. I mean, that's my assumption. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's true. I yeah. didn't think about that. I mean, you have said, Toby, that these shows that making a murderer and, you know, podcasts like Serial provide defendants with financial resources that other wrongfully convicted people don't get. Do you think it's good or bad for the justice system that this documentary now has allowed this testing to happen and that a lot of people in Avery's position aren't going to be able to do this testing? What do you think, Toby? Yeah, I don't think it's bad. The problem is there's like literally thousands of other people who didn't have a podcast or a documentary or whatever about them that probably have just as good, if not better, cases that aren't going to have the money to do it. So in some ways, it's kind of it's like winning the lottery, getting one of these things. I don't know much about the lawyer, but I'm assuming she's doing it basically pro bono, right? Zellner is a well-known lawyer who has overturned a bunch of convictions. It's mm-hmm. sort of what she's famous for, actually, is overturning convictions and wrongfully convicted clients. And she's very outspoken. She tweets a lot. She's the kind she's of aggressive. lawyer. She's, she's kind of like that woman in... Uh, the night off. The up, night off. Right? That's, yeah. Yes. Very I was much. The same thing. The big one wheel. that came yeah. into yes. case. Yes. Yeah. She's very and much like that defense attorney. And left when we found out there wasn't any money involved. Yes. Yeah. She's, she's very yeah. much like the defense attorney in Naz's case, actually. And if you sort of look her up and sort of look at how she, you know, from the moment she took on this case, she's tweeting, he's 100% innocent and we're going to prove it. We have what we need. We have the smoking gun. And then, you know, reading this motion that she filed is, is just really interesting is to sort of see how she's putting those threads together in a legal argument. So, Laura, what do you think? Do you think it's good or bad or whatever for the justice system to have Stephen Avery be able to file this 154-page petition looking for all these new tests and putting these threads of evidence together because a documentary was made about him. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's an interesting way that he came into the funds to make that possible. But, you know, when you look at the justice system and the criminal justice system, you have all different levels of what people are able to do for their defense based on what means they have to get a lawyer or an investigator or independent testing or experts. So he just was able to kind of come into the funds to make this possible a different way. But to me, it just feels like they're just throwing everything up there to see if anything sticks at this point. Because who knows, they could find something, they might not. But like Toby said, I mean, what is it going to hurt? At this point, he's in jail. So, But these are all things that in the due diligence of investigating the case, you know, they're fleshing out every possible avenue that they can to see if there's anything there at this point. You know, I was going to say earlier, I think, you know, in terms of like pitching this case to a jury and selling it to a jury, if I was a juror, I think I would be more inclined to be swayed if there was like alternate suspects presented as opposed to the police conspiracy, because I think that's a little bit easier to latch on to. Do you think that the voicemails being deleted, maybe by the ex-boyfriend, as I think she intimates in this filing, are those interesting pieces of evidence that you would weigh as a juror? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what weight you would be able to give those. I mean, you're, you're really just speculating about what was on those. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it could have been that they were just having like some little dirty talk, like you know, the jail phone calls that I used to listen to (laughs) (laughs) when um, people were incarcerated for a long time and feeling lonely. But I mean, who knows? I I just think it's going to be interesting to see if this goes forward, what if anything does come from these tests, but also at the same time with the DNA testing being that much more specific and refined now, 
you know, it's something I feel like both sides could probably poke holes in depending on what the results were. Kevin, what do you think about this whole thing? The filing, fingerprints in the car, the DNA testing, yeah, all the stuff that we've talked okay, about. Okay, a couple of things. I, the first thing is like looking at the fingerprints. They actually want to see if they can pull DNA from a fingerprint. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't know if it ends up being the cops. I don't necessarily know what that proves. Mm-hmm. Maybe it proves they contaminated evidence. I don't know if it necessarily proves that they moved a car to frame somebody. Long-term, some of this testing sounds really interesting. And then maybe if it becomes more mainstream, maybe that is a good thing. I mean, DNA testing is regular old plain old DNA testing. is pretty expensive. So maybe radiocarbon dating, blood spatter is something that might become more mainstream as a, as a law enforcement tool. Generally, we don't do well with ambiguity, right? We want to find out definitively and believe that someone's guilty or someone's innocent. And we want that piece of evidence that exonerates them or proves them guilty. Mm -hmm. And science is usually the closest thing we can come to that because, you know, eyewitnesses can lie and, you know, people know now make false confessions. Science seems to be the thing that we lean the most on. Mm -hmm. And so if we get these new kinds of tests, And, you know, if they found to be effective, you know, the next guy and the next woman and the next guy after that, you know, they might be able to use that. What this means for Avery is that, I mean, this really is a case if they could prove that that blood was not fresh. That's a knockout punch. Mm -hmm. If the rest of the stuff is just sort of, you know, it it maybe proves a little bit or just confuses things. It doesn't really help all that much. But as far as the public perception and to some extent, you know, to the judge and the legal perception, it still makes Stephen Avery look good. Right. But the best way to look good is to have a Harry's razor <laughs> and to keep yourself looking really clean when you've got to go to court. You know, Harry's makes their own razors at a factory in Germany. It's just for them. They do? They do. And that's how you get a fantastic close, comfortable shave with their five-blade German-crafted razors. They've got a a flex hinge and a lubricating strip, which is good if you got that little spot right by your Adam's apple that always gets really sore. (laughs) I don't know anything about that. Quality is guaranteed. Now, now when we see Toby at the live event, Rebecca, I want you to rub your hands all over his cheeks. (laughs) His face cheeks. His face cheeks. His face cheeks, because he will have used his Harry's razor and he is going to be like a cherub's butt, right? Yeah. <laughs> kind of making me super uncomfortable. <laughs> He's filing an HR complaint with uh, Partners in Crime Media right now. <laughs> They're very difficult working conditions. <laughs> Aries is great because they cut out the middleman with their factory direct prices, no upcharges. And right now, for our fans of Crime Writers On, you can check out Harry's starter set. They call that the Truman. And it's so gra- clever. Yes, I know. It, this is a good deal. It's just for $15, you get a razor handle, moisturizing shave cream, and three of Harry's five-blade German engineer razors. And the offer for fans of this show, $5 off your first purchase with promo code CRIME. So go to harrys.com right now and look for the Truman set. That's Harry's H. A-R-R-Y-S dot com. Enter code CRIME at checkout and get $5 off to help support the show. Stop compromising. Give Harry's a try. With promo code CRIME. CRIME.
Is there anything else you want to talk about, Kevin? Yeah, you know, um, these headphones are feeling really heavy on my head. They are? Yeah, it's because I've been listening to so many audiobooks from audible.com. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, I've been listening to a lot, but not as much as you. Audible no. has thousands and thousands of titles for you to choose from, and all these different players that will play them. iPhones, iPads, Android, Windows Phone, I, even iPhones that don't have headphone jacks. <laughs> Apparently, you can listen. I listen on the Bluetooth speaker for my iPhone while I'm taking a shower, tell, as you know. Tell me what you've been listening to. I've been Audible. listening to the Shetland Mystery Series from Anne Cleves. I have been loving it. Is I this am about on, dogs? No, it takes place in the Shetland Islands. Ponies? I am on book six of six. I am a complete audible.com audiobook convert. I used to make fun of you, as you know, when you used to say you were reading, but you were listening to audiobooks. I am an addict, and I love me some Anne Cleves Shetland Mystery Series books. Jimmy Perez is the detective, and they're great. They're just great. Now, you can buy one book at a time or buy the whole series. I buy the whole series. However, <laughs> folks, just a word of warning, don't do what Rebecca did, <sighs> which is go through the series and start book five Before instead of book four. Before starting four and finding out oh. that my... And one of your favorite characters is dead. Oh, no! I don't want, I want to say here for a spoiler alert, but yes, I made the mistake of accidentally listening to the first two minutes of book five before book four, and I then wanted to shoot myself. But whatever. Audible's great. That isn't how the character died, right? No. Okay. The, the, the Anne Cleves mystery series, Shetland mystery series is great. Laura, how about you? Have you been listening to anything? Um, well, we have been. We have been listening to The Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing by Judy oh, Bloom. Judy! <laughs> they have that on audio? They do. Um, oh. So... My son's supposed to read 20 minutes a night, and he's a pretty reluctant reader. And so his teacher told him, well, you know what? You can listen to an audiobook. New research um, says it's the same as reading. Mm -hmm. So he came home and told me, I can listen to an audiobook. I'm like, yeah, that's not true. Well, it was true. So we've been listening to the tales of fourth grade nothing this week. Wow. It's pretty great. I know. Mm -hmm. Nice. I was just listening to the Nerdist podcast, and the guest was Max Brooks, mm -hmm. who's the son of Mel Brooks and Bancroft. Max has dyslexia, and he said when he was growing up, his mother got him all these books on tape. And so that's how he fell in love with audiobooks. And he is the author of World War Z. Mm -hmm. And when he did the audiobook, he, he said, look, I can't, instead of just having one reader, I want to get a whole cast because this book is structured like a whole bunch of interviews. And he's got like fantastic people. He said he's like the only audiobook that has Alan Alda and Henry Reynolds on it and Simon Pegg and all these other famous people. That's my next audiobook is World War Z. What about you, Toby? Listening to anything? I am. I'm listening to Nixon Land by Rick Perlstein. That sounds intellectual. Is this fiction? No, it's, it's nonfiction. It's popular history, but it's three books sort of tracing the rise of modern conservatism. So this is the middle one, and it's sort of focused, as it sounds, on Richard Nixon. But it's it's very accessible. The reader's really good. So I'm, I'm enjoying it. Now, for our listeners, Audible.com is offering a free 30-day trial membership. Go to audible.com slash crime today and start your free trial. Again, show your support for Crime Writers on and get your free 30-day trial at audible.com Slash, slash crime. Crime. Slash, slash crime. crime. <laughs> Audible.com slash crime. crime. <laughs> All right, guys. Toby, I'm going to start with you. How do you think Kevin did on those pair of ads? How do you think he transitioned into them? And then how do you think he performed the ads overall? Wow, this is a two-parter. This is a two-parter, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, like as I've said before, Kevin's sort of, I think he's kind of mastered the transition at this point. So I think this was up to the usual high standard. And I think the ad readings were good, too. I I have no complaints, nor do I think our sponsors would. I hope they don't. What about you, Laura? (laughs) What do you think? I think Kevin is made to do radio ads. It's seamless and smooth at this point. Thank you so much. That's that's why I think you guys will like Nerd Wallet. (laughs) Nerd Wallet. (laughs) (laughs) That's later. I'm gonna, yeah, I'll put that one in my back pocket. That's later in the show. You know, I did see that one of Mark Marin's producers tweeted last week. Like, that I don't understand why people who do podcasts program their ads like old fashioned radio. And I just thought, we don't do that. We don't do that at all. We get a lot of love on Twitter. <laughs> we got a lot of love. People enjoy the the capitalism. We like it when people tweet about the stuff they bought or just tweet about hearing the ads. Mm. I think it makes, you know, our podcast isn't as a much of a juggernaut as like some other podcasts are. We're pretty successful, but we're not like, you know, serial or like, you know, the nerdist. So when people tweet about our ads and like they include the brand, I don't know. I got to think that's got to be helping us, right? I hope so. <laughs> I certainly hope so. All right. Well, let's move on to the other thing that we've been talking about all summer long, HBO's limited series, The Night Of. It had its finale during our break. And good news for our British listeners who've been complaining. I hear the series is soon to be available in the UK, so you can now listen back to all those episodes that you've been skipping or perhaps (laughs) fast-forwarding through and understand what the hell we were talking about. So let's go ahead and talk about how The Night Of wrapped up. If you haven't finished the series yet, you might want to fast-forward just a little bit. I will put in the show notes where you should fast-forward to. I have forgotten that feedback, and I will follow it. Look for the show notes on the podcast, and we'll tell you where to fast-forward to to avoid The Night Of spoilers. Or just Jump to time code. (laughs) Nice. Fill in the blank. Yeah, I'm not going back and recording the time code now. (laughs) All right. So, the night of, it had its finale, and there was no clear resolution. In Nas's trial, of course, there was that epic closing argument, and then a hung jury. So, Laura, first question hung juries. Ever seen one? Does it really happen? (laughs) Oh, yeah. It happens all the time. Really? Yes. Yeah. Ever yeah, seen I one? I was on well, one. I haven't seen one, but I've, I've Toby's been Toby's hanged but... so many juries himself. <laughs> yeah. He's a lumber thief walking around because he couldn't make up his mind. Yeah. No, I was, I was on a hung jury. Well, I will tell you, our lawyer friend, Joshua Reinitz, who was on a previous episode talking about the night of, he did write me a couple of emails, feedback about the night of, and he does say that hung juries happen all the time. Judges certainly try to keep them on deliberating, as we saw, but that it was very improper to go as far as the judge did in the night of and ask for a vote count and put the jury on the spot like that. Laura, what did you think of that detail? Well, the whole courtroom, I mean, I know we're probably going to get into the whole courtroom scene in the last two episodes was just I like was cringing. It was so unrealistic. And that part there, I was like, that is just so out of line. That is not how that would play out. If the judge did that, I don't think they'd be reprimanded, but it would be out of line. Yeah, I'm with Laura that I thought that the trial stuff was sort of, you know, played up for dramatic effect. But to that extent, I mean, I I did like the fact that the judge was kind of a dink as opposed to maybe a judge that you see in law and order that's just going to, you know, be careful, Mr. McCoy. And that's about (laughs) the extent of how, you know, how much they interject. I thought was really important was that the jury was tied 6-6. Right. I think that that's very significant, you know, that it's right down the middle. That it, it, Not only does it sort of ring to the point like, oh, yeah, you're right. They're not going to get anywhere because they're right down the middle. But I think it's symbolic of sort of the whole show about black and white and left and right and 
that it just was another thing that just sort of cut down the middle and that you're not going to get a, the clearest of answers on. Now, one of the things that we saw happening in the final couple of episodes is that Detective Box, he's now retired ostensibly. He's been given his set of golf clubs, yet he's still pursuing the truth in the case, and he finds another suspect, a really viable suspect in the case, the financial advisor, who was advising uh, the dead woman, Andrea, on her estate. Now, Toby, did you find it believable that a retired detective would um, continue to pursue leads in a murder case? Did you find that part of the series believable at all? First, I guess I would take issue with continue to investigate, because it seems like he didn't really do it in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, I think one of the disappointing things about the series was that the investigative work is ridiculous and they just decide to investigate certain things at times when it would make for a good moment in the story. Mm-hmm. So the idea that you wouldn't look at videotape of what happened right before she went to the cab when you're initially investigating it. I mean, I think there's a scene where Chandra's looking through tape, right? She's looking through closed circuit camera tape and why wouldn't they go back two minutes before she got in the cab to see what was going on. And she's like looking over her shoulder and stuff. So I I kind of felt that that was a a fairly weak part of the show in general. So it was, I surprised he quote unquote continued his investigation. I'm not just because that's the way the show was written was that you had to have him do the like real investigation at the end. Cause if he'd done it at the beginning, it would just would have been different. Right. If he'd done his due diligence, it's not like it was a big mystery and deduction or anything. It was tape that he declined to look at earlier. And then once he looked at it, he was like, oh, maybe it's that guy. I'm going to give the show a pass on sort of the timeline of when it was appropriate to start investigating the real estate holdings and stuff like that. Yeah, that would have all been done long before they went to trial. But in the timeline of of 10 episodes, if you if you front load it with all that stuff, then there's the story ends up being very thin. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give him a pass. It's, it, it isn't the Stephen Avery case. This is a fictional. But I will say the one thing that I was like, why are they not doing this? This is one of the first things they would have done was to reconstruct the victim's previous 24 hours and not just Nas's. It took, you know, this little clue of her like looking over her shoulder for someone to say, well, I wonder what happened before that. That would have been a crucial part of the investigation of both the prosecution and the defense. Mm -hmm. If you have enough cameras, you can go back and follow her all the way to the meal and even farther. You know, let's go back, you know, before she went into dinner and catch her getting out of a cab someplace. And then to be able to go back just 20 minutes before she got into Nas's cab, it seemed to be pretty obvious that nobody got to that. Right. Now, I, I do want to address some of the legal issues. As I mentioned earlier, Joshua Ryan, it's a defense attorney that we've talked to previously on the show about the night of, did bring up two things in one of his emails to me. And Laura, I'm going to let you wax about these. He talked first about 404B, and then he talked about Brady. He talked about the fact that the state was allowed to bring evidence of Nas's misbehavior in high school, violence against other students, into trial and that that would not have been permitted because he was a juvenile when that behavior took place. And the other thing that he brought up was we did see Detective Box talking to the prosecutor about the new evidence that he'd uncovered, especially the videotape of the new suspect that he identified going through the 
tolls, et cetera, all the timing working out, and that that was not disclosed to the defense under oh, the Brady right. rule. Yeah. Laura, did either or both of those two things stick out and bother you? Yeah. A lot of the legal stuff in the show bothered me because I just felt like they did all this research and yet they didn't seem to research that to make it stick true and ring true. Um, I mean, the juvenile stuff, you know, that's clearly, I mean, you can get in huge, huge trouble if you reveal anything on somebody's juvenile record. Um, you know, that's something that never would have come in. And a lot of the, um, you know, things that were just casually dropped in during questioning were things that never would have been allowed in. And even the way, like, I mean, I don't know if anyone else found it bizarre, the way that the prosecutor was like leaning into the witness box, practically like, you know, <laughs> jumping in with the people. I was like, oh, my God, I just couldn't take it. And certainly not turning over information about this new suspect, which was pretty credible information. But when this stuff was getting me all worked up, because I was watching this and I was watching the courtroom scenes and I was like, even the way that they were questioning witnesses was so unbelievable. I was just, this is not how it would play out in court. And I had to take a little step back because I was yelling at the TV again. And this really isn't like a police procedural. This show was really more a study in human nature. Mm -hmm. And if you look at it from that angle, then it's okay that they sort of bent things and twisted things for more of the narrative and the storytelling angle. Because the intention here was not to, I don't think, put forward some sort of police show. It was more to put forward sort of a study in human nature of all the characters that were involved in the crime and how this one crime affected everybody. You're right. It's not a procedural. It's a drama. Yeah. And so you have yeah. to have the, the willing suspension of belief. But if you do that and you forget about all of the goofy things that would just not be allowed and look at the drama going on around it. That's what we're supposed to be focused on. Yeah, I actually really liked the prosecutor in the series. I liked that she had a strange affect. I liked that she sort of talked with that sort of like half Botoxed, kind of like very <laughs> New York mouth. I kind of liked that she was very flat and confident in her affect. She had to be a polished 30-year-old professional woman with her hair perfect and stuff that she was a... Uh, no, she was, I really love the casting in that role. One of the things I want to talk about, speaking of sort of the human condition and, the, and, and it being about that, is the prison stuff, you know, the Rikers Island stuff and how the story played out there. Now, Toby, you know, at the end, it sort of appears that Freddie has taken Nas under his wing because he believes in his innocence, that he sort of believed in him the whole time. And he also kind of ruined Nas for the outside world. We see Nas has now left jail and he's a heroin addict. Was he helping him in the only way he could or was he ruining him on purpose? I'm curious to know what you think. I don't know. I kind of found that that relationship was compelling at the beginning and then became less so as it went on. If I had to kind of ascribe like some kind of logic to what he was doing, my assumption would be that he would think that like everybody else in there, even if he was innocent, that he was probably going to be found guilty in the trial. I mean, he could see how the media was handling it and stuff like that. So that I don't think getting him hooked on drugs and all these tattoos and stuff, I think was basically with the idea that he was going to be in there for good. What do you think, Kevin? And what do you think about the way that Nas left the jail without saying goodbye to Freddie? Yeah. Didn't Freddie like refer to him as a unicorn? Yeah. yeah, Freddie believed in his innocence, but he I don't think he was sort of he wasn't doing him any favors about what will happen when he goes to the outside world, mm -hmm. even if he believes in his innocence. I think he was preparing him the best way that he knew how and the way that was best with the resources that he had on the inside if he were to stay because I think he really wanted him to stay. Not He didn't want to sabotage his defense. 
but I think he really, you know, would have liked it if he had stayed and could have been his pet, his friend, whatever, his unicorn. Mm-hmm. Nasa still remains to me like a very interesting figure. In a, in a way, even though he's Muslim, the way he's written as a literary figure, he's written as a Christ-like figure where he starts off as being innocent and then he is persecuted. He goes and there's, you know, there's, there's the resurrection. There's even the markings on the hands. These are all sort of different things that, that authors use when they create Christ-like imagery. I- yeah, imagery. And in that way, Nas has some of those qualities. You remember the tattoos on the hands, mm-hmm. right? The first one said sin mm-hmm. and the second one said bad. And you put it together and it's sin bad, as you talked about. But separately, it's sin bad. Sin is bad. Hmm. And sort of, again, a thing about declaring his own innocence in a literary way. I thought he was, in an abstract way, a very interesting character. I don't think I ever felt the same about him emotionally at the end as I did at the beginning when we first met him. Now, I want to talk about another character that I think has sort of a confounding journey, and that's his lawyer, Chandra. You know, we see that the videotape gets out of her macking on him in the uh, little cell (laughs) where they met. And then, you know, she obviously has a consequence for that. She's not able to then sort of continue being first chair in the case. She gets fired from her job with a fancy, mean defense attorney. Laura, what do you think motivated Chandra to lean over and uh, mack on Nas during their uh, (laughs) little lawyer conversation? Bambi it must eyes. Have been the, I don't know. I was going to say it must have been the tattoos. I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, I feel like she was a character that started off extremely naive and innocent, even though she's a lawyer and she's obviously very bright and she's working for this big law firm. But she never worked on a case like this. She'd never worked up close and, and personal, so to say, with a criminal defendant. And I think that somebody like her obviously got very drawn into the emotion of the case and the person. And I felt like You know, Nas, certainly, I think he really manipulated that situation when he was calling her on his contraband cell phone, when he was calling her on the phone, when he had the phone that he was like renting out to people. And he Mm -hmm. was like, you know, you're sticking up for me. Why are you doing this? Why are you helping me? And it was like, I think that she really gets sucked into this by him inadvertently. And then I don't know, but it just seemed like somebody that was very naive and sheltered and maybe saw that this wasn't as black and white as they thought it was when they got into the field of doing defense and really lost their boundaries. So I thought the thing with Chandra kissing Nas and just in general, the last two or three episodes with Chandra was really just bad. And I I really like Richard Price, but I thought that was bad writing. It's just hard for me to believe a lawyer of any sort wouldn't know not to do that. It also turns out, well, I don't know if it's the case in New York, but I was talking to a friend who's a lawyer in California who said there isn't any ethical taboo against having a sexual or romantic relations with a client. There is in New Hampshire. The there one, is? Yeah. But the way it functioned in the show was basically to get John Stone to give his final right. argument, right? And Just clear the way for him. That's the only purpose it serves other than to make her look like an idiot, right? <laughs> and then she looks like an idiot again when she puts him on on the stand, which like I knew when I was 12 from reading books Perry Mason or whatever is that you don't do that. So she she comes off looking like a fool, I think, in a way that's not consistent with the way you see her earlier, which is that she's thoughtful and she's dedicated and she seems, while she might be inexperienced, she seems as though 
at least capable enough to like do the basics, right? So I found like almost all the women, except for the prosecutor, don't come off very well in the show. Now, one of the things that we often talk about when we talk about things as a series as a whole is, you know, who's the protagonist? Whose story was this? We see Nas go through this long journey, this big transformation. We also see John Stone, his attorney, go through this big personal journey transformation, starting really sort of down on his luck, covered with eczema at the end, of course, (laughs) eczema returns. But then we also see him give this transcendent closing argument, which is the thing that secures the hung jury, or so we're led to believe. Now that it's all over, whose story do you think this was? Is this Nas's story or is this John Stone's story? I don't think it's definitely one or the other. And I guess I found this John Stone one a little more compelling you know, I could have really done without the eczema. Like that was a whole subplot that I think took a hell of a lot of time and to no real effect. Yeah, I think I think John Stone's a good character. I think Nas was a pretty good character, although you're you're accepting that he kind of goes wholeheartedly into this kind of thug life thing very quickly and without much in the way of regrets. The two actors are so good that I think you're invested in them maybe more than the writing gave them a right to be. Mm-hmm. But I, John Turturro is just, he, he's so good. I mean, I think all the acting was really good. The acting was great. And I will give Nas a pass on his quick sliding into thug life because he started using opioids and he became an addict. And that is, from what I understand, working in a newsroom that is heavily covering an opioid addiction crisis is exactly how it works. But you don't think people, you don't think somebody who goes to jail for something which he thinks that he's innocent for and becomes an addict, you don't think he has regrets or- I think that's or, the price he paid for protection, Toby, because yeah. remember that guy who yeah. threw hot uh, oil on his face? Yeah. He was going to die. Right, right. I'm not saying that he shouldn't have done it, but wouldn't he at least be somewhat introspective about what's happened to him in the last month? Kevin, yeah. what about you? What do you think? Is this- a- I think it's John Stone's story. You do? Yeah, I think he's the protagonist of this story. I mean- the clue is that it ends on him, right, in the in the last scene. Does it end with Naz, though? The last shot we see of him is by the bridge, smoking. Last shot is John Turturro's apartment. And yeah. uh, you see him smoking and thinking back about Andrea. Right. And, and sort of, you know, the look on his face does seem sort of regretful and sort of like, what happened to me? And the fact that you know that the story's over, but things are not going to be good for him. Usually when a story ends, it's like, hey, everybody got what they deserved and there's this great transformation or people wind up back where they began what the way things were supposed to be in the first place. But in this one, everybody, it's different for everybody else. And you don't know if the people who things change for are the right people that change and they're changing the right way. And the people that come back to normal are the right kind of people. One Not, person is better off and that's John Stone. No. No? I disagree. He goes back to being who he always was. I don't agree. The yeah. phone right. call he gets, he gets call. he's he like up. 250 bucks cash and I'm going down right now. Now, the difference is the cat. No, I actually no- think the cat is the symbol that things are different and that he is changed. But I don't think yeah. he is. John Stone got a victory in a major, heavily covered murder he case. He did. He did. But he always felt sort of unsure of himself as the ambulance chasing lawyer, which was displayed with his eczema. And then he gets his big break and it clears up 
and now he's got swag and he's wearing shoes and stuff like that. And before the biggest moment that he has in court, the eczema comes back. And he, he finds delivers. out, and he finds out that the you know the the, the Chinese powder is all bunk, and it's all it's all like within him. It's all in his heart, Tin Man. You That's know, right. he had it the whole time. And he delivers. He delivers, despite the fact that he is going back to the way that he was. He's on his way back to being the two hundred and fifty dollar an hour lawyer. His life does not change dramatically. What do you think the cat meant, Laura? Boy, no, I think the cat does mean that he changed because, you know, he's he's wrestling with this the entire show. He's taking the cat there. And then at the end, he's actually letting the cat roam around the apartment. He's not keeping him in the hermetically sealed room where he's wearing his rubber gloves every time he goes in. That exit is never um, going away now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did think there was, like Kevin had pointed out, that sort of parallel between Nas and the cat. Some people had questioned if when he got the phone call, if that was Nas calling and Nas was in trouble again Hmm. and that that they were always going to be linked that way. But I do think that he grew as a character and he, he did sort of go back into where he began. But I think that was part of his character is that even though he sort of felt like these cases that he was taking on were, you know, two bit little cases with like the prostitutes and the druggies and whatever, he was committed to those cases, you know, some more than others, you know, his little friend that would come and pay him at night. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that when you were asking whose story was this, I think it was both John Stone's story and Nas's story. And the scene that made me feel that way was at the end when John Stone says to Nas, you know, we all have a cross to bear. And I think you can look at both of them had sort of parallels in terms of things that they had to overcome and things that were never going to leave that they were going to have to continue to work with. Well, one of the things that we did in every previous episode where we discussed the night of was we sort of threw it out there, whether we thought uh, Nas did it or not, or who did it or not. And I think that we all agree this show, just given our discussion tonight, like sounds an awful lot like it was an exercise in ambiguity. So, Kevin, who do you think killed Andrea? The cat. <laughs> what about you, Toby? The cat doesn't have an alibi. <laughs> all right, I'm going to skip you. All. What do you think, Toby? Who do you think did it when it's all said and done. I thought they were making it pretty clear that it was the accountant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't see how that was ambiguous. What about you, Laura? Do you agree with that? Yeah, I thought it was the accountant because I thought he basically kind of admitted it to Box in yeah. a way. Yeah, I agree too, Kevin. Yeah. You want to do take yeah, back your yeah, cat I, answer? I, no, <laughs> I take it back. Yeah, it's Ray Halley. It's it's the accountant it who embezzled three hundred thousand dollars. There's his motive. Yes, yes, and uh, was seen on the videotape arguing with her. And uh, but the ambiguity is Box. You see Box going after to literally chase him, mm-hmm. but you don't ever know if he catches him. No, and you'll see the prosecutor deciding that uh, let's go get this guy too, which is an interesting little thing at the end. After she had said earlier in the episode, we've got more on the kid. And you're mm-hmm. like, oh, is that how we decide? Anyway, that's a topic for a different day. Yeah. All right. Well, now it's time for us to do the thing that we always do when we've finished something. And that's give it a letter grade. Toby, I'm going to put you second because I want to like have the dip be in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Laura, what uh, letter grade do you give the night of in its entirety this special limited series from HBO? I'm going to go B+. My only complaint is that it did drag at times and it was a little bit slow with the pacing kind of in the middle. But overall, I really liked it for, you know, this sort of case study and sort of what happens to somebody within the criminal justice system. What about you, Toby? What grade do you give the night of? I guess I'd probably give it a C. Wow. Wow. Everything except for the writing, I think, was really good. But I just I I feel I'd like to see like the the draft right before they started cutting it apart and and making decisions. I, I don't understand 
a lot of the decisions that were made in constructing the narrative. And like I said, a couple episodes, I said, it's off to a promising start and we'll see. And again, I, I just feel like it kind of fell apart. What about you, Kevin? What grade do you give the night of from HBO? I'm going to give it a B plus. I would have gone to an A minus or better, but I'll agree with, with Laura that there were times, certainly in the middle where it seemed to drag a little bit. Like, where are we going here? Because we had this parallel narratives that were just not going to ever intertwine, mm-hmm. you know, other than Nas, you know, getting a visit from uh, the lawyers. Nothing that's going on with Freddie and his crew is going to somehow affect the mystery of of, of, of who killed Andrea. But I, I did like it a lot. And I thought the performance by the leads were were really great. Maybe, you know, for most people who are sitting back with a beer and watching it and looking for a procedural, this is good. But I think for somebody like us that pulled this apart on a podcast, I think there's a lot of meat there right. that we can look at, especially, you know, when we talk about symbolism and pacing and all this other stuff. I think it was well thought out. This would have been a great True Detective season three. I'm going to give it uh, between a B and a B plus. I agree with much of what many of you have said. I think there were great characters, fantastic performances. The performances alone are what would elevate it to B plus to A minus range for me. I think the storytelling had some holes. I had some issues with uh, the women characters, as Toby did. Um, but, you know, there was a great protagonist, a great second protagonist, a really, really compelling victim. I think they could have done a lot more with Andrea Cornish's character. You know what I really think would have been great if they had done with Andrea Cornish's character? Wow. If they had called Isalon to get her hair colored before oh, she was snap! murdered. Oh, <laughs> snap! Yes. Pooch yes. has went into a transition! Yes, because... <laughs> You know how a hair color is absolutely perfect for you? Is if it has your actual name on it. Our new sponsor this week, eSalon. How does my hair look, Kevin? It looks fantastic. You know why? Because eSalon offers professional grade, completely personalized hair color, and they created this one just for me and delivered it to our door. So here's how it works. True fact, yes or no? True fact. I did. I usually get my hair colored at a place. I know, there's no gray. I did it myself with eSalon. Uh, I just filled out a questionnaire, uploaded my photo, and my personal colorist formulated my color from almost 15,000 pigments. What are they just like, what do you like? What goes with your skin? How do they determine? Oh, I don't know. There's an algorithm <laughs> and there's also a human being. All I know is that I also had a phone call with my personal colorist and we sort of talked through some of my hair foibles like for example I need an extra batch of color because I have more hair than anybody else you've ever made this hair color for I have to clean the shower <laughs> drain Probably so yes true. I agree with you yes. but anyway it's a really really great experience your unique Isalon color then gets delivered to your door as minded with your name on the bottle very specific instructions on how to apply the color exactly the way it's supposed to be done and then if you have questions all you gotta do is uh, contact your hair your personal hair colorist at Isalon there's a phone call away. It could not be easier. So if you want a little something different, you just ask the next time. It's too dark. It's too light. It's too brassy. It's too ashy. Or if you didn't quite do it right, eSalon is there for you. You know, they even sent me a little bib, a little like apron to oh, wear. Oh, that's nice. It was pretty great. <laughs> can Toby use eSalon? <laughs> Toby can use eSalon. And I'm telling listeners, don't let your color fade. Just because you can't get to the salon, making an appointment is a pain in the ass. Sometimes it takes weeks to get in. 
or you can just call eSalon. So go to eSalon.com slash crime right now. New customers, our listeners will receive 50% off their first box. That's $10 off for your personalized hair color. Did I mention it also has your name on it? Yeah. You, you saw did. that, right? You I'll did. tweet a picture. Well, yeah. Get 50% off your first box at eSalon.com slash crime now. That's eSalon.com slash crime. 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 How do you E-salon? spell E-salon? E-salon. <laughs> oh. No hyphen. E-S-A-L-O-N dot com slash crime. crime. So, uh, Laura, what grade would you give Rebecca on her surprise transition? I loved it. That was so much fun. Toby, how about you? I'm still a little disoriented. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give you props, Rebecca. That was great. Thanks, babe. That was very good. I learned good. from the best. You learned from the best. Well, Ooh. here's going to be a completely ham-fisted transition. Okay. I'm going to talk about Nerd Wallet now <laughs> because I can't top that. Nerd Wallet has been a sponsor for a while, and we really love what Nerd Wallet has to offer. Nerd Wallet helps you decide what credit card you want to get and which one's going to work the hardest for you. Now, Nerd Wallet is in a place where they don't sell credit cards, but what they will do is they're kind of like the consumer reports of credit cards. They will look at all of them, look at the fine print, tell you which ones are the best if you want cash back cards or rewards cards, or maybe you're just, you want to transfer your balance. What's the best card for that? That's where Nerd Wallet comes in. Their financial experts give you straightforward, no hype reviews, and it's very easy to use. So get all you can from your credit cards. You deserve it. Find a credit card that works hard for you. Visit nerdwallet.com slash crime. That's nerdwallet.com slash crime. Nerdwallet.com slash Crime. crime. Then use your credit card to go to esalon.com slash crime and get some hair color. Yeah, you could do that. <laughs> All right. So now it's time to move on to my favorite part of this show. A little something I like to call the, the crime, crime of, of the, the week. week. Guys, this one freaks me the hell out. And it has <laughs> yeah. happened again. Residents in North Carolina community have been freaked out also by a creepy clown that has been <laughs> spotted walking through the woods. Yep, this not-so-funny perp has been spotted in full makeup with a wig, a rubber nose, baggy pants, the big shoes, the whole shebang. Jesus. Police say the clown tried to lure two children into the woods by offering them treats, allegedly. The latest occurrence happened near Greensboro. Police say a father spotted the clown and tried to chase him. And even though he was wearing those big floppy shoes, the clown was able to run away. (laughs) So there have been a rash of clown sightings all over the Carolinas. Uh, Police are saying that dressing as a clown isn't necessarily illegal. (laughs) However, sometimes the clowns have been knocking on doors or standing in backyards, and the police aren't sure if the cases are even related. or Just standing in the backyard, like looking at the house? Whether they're just copycat clowns. That's freaky. Doing it for a chuckle. So here's the question that I have for you, panel. Toby Ball... If you spotted a clown coming out of the woods behind your house, what would you do? Would you run? Would you hide? Would you fight back? Would you call the cops? What would you do? I'd give that clown a whooping. <laughs> uh, stay down, clown. I don't know, man. I Apparently, just this guy like started running after the clown. The clown turned around and ran. With the big floppy shoes. <laughs> and that was the thing. I Did was the like, feet make bongo noises like the Flintstones? I feel like you could kind of wait and see how the clown was going to react and still run away from him with the big floppy shoes. 
What's he yeah, running I'm probably from? Just trying to have a conversation with him, see what his motivations were. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the protagonist, clown? <laughs> yeah, is, it, yes, is he a sad clown or an angry clown? <laughs> what about you, Laura? What would you do if a clown was spotted in the woods behind your house? Oh, boy. I mean, this is like a Stephen King novel or something to me. It. Um, I don't know if any of you remember the pumpkin man case around here where we had the guy in the pumpkin mask that was hiding in the woods. And that was obviously he was up to no good. Yeah, that's um, creepy. I would hightail it out of there. I'd be gone. I, I, I don't really want anything to do with this clown. Even the pictures that have been circulating about this are so creepy. I don't even want to look at them. What about you, Kevin? What would you do if you spotted a clown coming out from the woods, which, by the way, there are woods behind our house. What would you do? If I saw a clown jump out of a bush, I'm running because, you know, there's 27 other little clowns right behind him in that bush. <laughs> like a clown car? Yeah, like a clown car. Yeah. I don't have to spray him with my funny flower lapel. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting out of there. I think you know what I would do because I've called the cops when I saw a dead bird on the sidewalk. Yeah, you'd probably, you would pee your pants. <laughs> I'm afraid of clowns and I and that, love calling the cops. You would pee your pants and that color does doesn't have your name on it. <laughs> All right. So we should probably wrap it up on that note. Laura Bricker, if our listeners want to tweet with you, get a link to a story about that man in the pumpkin mask, how can they reach you on the Twitter? It's at Laura Bricker. And I should also mention I have decided upon Cheese Bricker for my name. Yeah. <laughs> for your Jimmy Buffett name. That was suggested by yeah. a listener, correct? Cheese Bricker in paradise. I yes. love it. Because I like cheese. I like cheeseburgers. Cheese Bricker. It just has a nice ring to it. But do you like long walks in the rain? That's the question. I had That's one this morning. That's a different morning. song. I know, and it's not even Jimmy Buffett, but it's, it's a pina colada song. Yes, I know. Toby Ball, you're on the Twitter, correct? Yes, I am. <laughs> what is your Twitter handle, Toby? At real Donald Trump. <laughs> what would you do if you saw Donald Trump walking out of the woods behind your house? I'd run because there's 27 more clowns right behind him. <laughs> and Kevin, we live in New Hampshire. It's not that unusual. It's true. Kevin Flynn, if people want to tweet with you, how can they find you on the Twitters? Oh, you can get me at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to find me on Twitter, you can tweet me at Reb Lavoie. You can also find me at Reb Lavoie on Instagram. Our show is also on Twitter at Crime Writers On. So send us a tweet or send us a voice memo. The directions for how to do that are posted on the blog section of our website, crimewriterson.com. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter, buy stuff using our Amazon link, get more info on next week's live podcast taping, and if you love the show, leave a review on iTunes. It helps new listeners discover the podcast. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. And this show was recorded in Studio C at Partners in Crime Media, a.k.a. the closet-sized, really, really hot little closet that also is a burgeoning media empire. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. Don't forget about These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast dropping September 14th. We will catch you later. You know what kombucha is? Negative. I like to think of kombucha as the physical manifestation of an acquired taste. Like olive juice? Like Kevin Flynn, but in a bottle. <laughs> Who is this? Hello, it's Kevin and Rebecca. <laughs> I told you never to call me here. Uh. <laughs> Jesus, my <laughs> wife could hear me.
this in Crime Media. Media. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.